The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, a podcast dedicated to the weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who probably wouldn't want to get taken out on the crapper, my co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, we finish up our coverage of the spring 2014 TV season with an in-depth discussion on the Game of Thrones finale. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on the, the finale episodes of Fargo and the finale episode of Orphan Black, and maybe even a few more things. Yes, which is going to excite you Star Wars fans to make sure you stick around. But before all of that, we're going to get into our new Nico stuff. The Legend of Korra Book 3 has a premiere date, and it's less than a week away. The Legend of Korra will return for its third season on Friday, June 27th. And no, that isn't a typo. The premiere date of Book 3, Change, is a week away. And on that day, three new episodes will air back to back to back, after which the show will take a week off for the July 4th holiday and return on July 11th. You may be asking yourself, wait, so soon? But Nickelodeon has barely promoted it. I was expecting some big stuff at Comic-Con. The trailer was just released last week. I've barely had time to decompress from that season 2 finale. What gives? Well, I'm only spitballing here, but I imagine the rush to get the episodes out has everything to do with the fact that on June 7th, or thereabouts, Mundo Nick, which is Nickelodeon's Spanish language branch, accidentally leaked dubbed versions of a number of episodes from Book 3 via its website. Those episodes were of course torrented, GIF, and fan subbed in a matter of days, if not hours. If you're part of the Legend of Korra fandom and through all its major different places, Facebook, Tumblr, and all of that, I imagine it's been a minefield of spoilers for you. So Nickelodeon's thinking, we don't want our fans to get spoiled, let's get these out as fast as possible, so they're going to start up way earlier than they were expecting. We were thinking August, mid-August, right. we are going to get some more Quora. But anyway, who cares? I'm just pumped for new Quora, you know? I don't care that it's next week. I'm super excited. So, Dan, how about you? Are you, are you excited about this, or are you a little disappointed? Well, it gives me something to watch over the summer, so I'm excited about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Big surprise to me. Um, I'm excited. I mean, I love this show. I'm always excited about Quora and not having to wait as long. It's great. God, yeah. It makes things a little tricky for our podcast, as we're going to go out of break. Yeah. So what we're going to do with this is we're going to cover the entire season in one big discussion of stuff. Yeah. Instead of going week by week. Yeah, we'll probably do that right before we come back from hiatus in, at the end of the summer right. and put it all together in a single episode, which will be the major focus or only focus of that episode. And we'll come back to that and then we'll get ready to start a fall season. Yeah. It just doesn't make a lot of sense for us to cover one show every week. Yeah. I think that's going to be a lot for you guys and a lot. But I am going to enjoy watching this. So Oh, absolutely. Everybody check this 
out. Harrison Ford could miss eight weeks of Star Wars shooting due to injury. More details on the injury Harrison Ford suffered on the set of Star Wars Episode 7 are coming in, with multiple sources reporting that the Han Solo actor could miss as much as eight weeks of shooting on the sequel. The Hollywood, yeah, the Hollywood Reporter and The Mirror confirmed that Ford broke his ankle on the set of, of Solo Ship, the Millennium Falcon, last Thursday. The Hollywood Reporter sources say, however, that Episode 7's schedule is expected to stay on target, if you can believe that. Stay on target? <laughs> yeah. With Ford's scenes moved towards the end of the shoot and other scenes not involving the actor taking place in his absence, the film is still on track for its December 18th, 2015 release date. We shall see if that remains the case as this injury goes forward. Hopefully, everything works out okay, because I'd hate to, for them to start messing with the script just because Harrison Ford isn't available for a certain day to shoot. He's too valuable to do that. Well, I think Han Solo is, is too important to the story right. to, to start cutting him just because of the injury. I mean, I, I, I'm super sad that Harrison right. Ford was injured on, on the scene, or on the set, but at the same time, I don't want them to change the movie because of this injury. Fans will wait for Han Solo. Oh, yeah. If it pushes it back six months, I, I, I mean, I would be disappointed, but I wouldn't be outraged. Exactly. And damn it, Chewie, you should have fixed that wheel. <laughs> Casey Kasem, radio legend and Scooby-Doo voice actor, dead at 82. American top 40 icon Casey Kasem, who carved out a lucrative side career providing the voice of Shaggy in the Scooby-Doo franchise, died early Sunday after a long battle with Parkinson's disease. He was 82. Kasem became a radio legend as host of the syndicated American Top 40, a gig he held down for 24 years, from 1970 to 88 and 1998 to 2004. In addition to voicing Shaggy in Scooby-Doo's various TV incarnations, Kasem's distinctive voice could be heard on Sesame Street as well as a number of commercials. This is sad news and he will be missed. I know I spent many a week listening to his top 40 as a kid and loved his voice on the radio and as Shaggy. Yes, it's unfortunate he will be missed. Ryan Johnson to write and direct Star Wars Episode 8. This is cool. Looper director Ryan Johnson will write and direct Star Wars Episode 8, the second part of the new trilogy. He will also reportedly write the treatment for Episode 9. J.J. Abrams is of course currently held episode 7. Deadline broke the news of Johnson's involvement in the hugely anticipated big screen revival of George Lucas's franchise. In a matter of just weeks, we have now seen Johnson hired for episode 8 and Chronicles Josh Trank and Godzilla's Gareth Edwards hired for separate standalone Star Wars films. While Deadline reports that Johnson is in the process of making a deal with Lucasfilm to write and direct both Star Wars episode 8 and 9, the rap claims that the filmmaker is both writing and directing 8 but will only be penning the treatment for nine. Johnson directed the well-received low-budget Brick before moving on to the Brothers Bloom and then the great time travel movie Looper, which starred Bruce Willis and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Good film. Breaking Bad fans may also recall that Johnson directed three episodes for that series. It's clear that Disney and Lucasfilms are looking to new blood for these films. With the exception of J.J. Abrams, Johnson, Trank, and Edwards all come from pretty low-budget beginnings and all made good-to-great sci-fi films with limited means. These are filmmakers who have proven themselves and really fans couldn't ask for anything more i'm excited this is a yeah. really good director to get for the next film well they wanted to bring in a new generation of filmmakers to do these star wars films and this is the right way to do it yeah absolutely but i like that they're not computer crazy directors either yeah that's one of the great things i'm loving about jj abrams leaked stuff from the set officially leaked yeah. stuff from the set is that a lot of it is showing practical effects and puppetry so right. i'm excited about that well, it gives it that classic feel. Yep. Of the other films, and yeah, it's good stuff.
Lifetime to air the unauthorized Saved by the Bell story. Oh, boy. Lifetime will go back to school this fall with the unauthorized Saved by the Bell story, a TV movie that chronicles the -the behind-the-scenes antics of NBC's beloved 1990s sitcom. The cast includes Dylan Everett as Mark Paul Gossler, or Zach, Sam Kinseth as Dustin Diamond slash Screech, Julian Works as Mario Lopez slash Slater, Tyria Scovby as Elizabeth Berkeley slash Jesse, Taylor Russell McKenzie as Lark Voorhees slash Lisa and newcomer Alyssa Lynch as Tiffany Amber Thiessen slash Kelly. Production of the film was promoted by Behind the Bell, Diamond's 2009 tell-all that highlighted the actor's involvement with sex and drugs during the show's run. The unauthorized Saved by the Bell story will film in Vancouver and premiere September 1st at 9-8 Central. That's interesting. <laughs> I think it's going to be very successful because people cult worship that show. Ah, uh, believe me, I, I grew up watching Saved by the Bell and I probably will watch this tell all sort of unauthorized Saved by the Bell behind the stories, you know, thing. I, I don't think any of the actors are very happy about this. <laughs> no, especially since Mark Paul Gosler kind of escaped it. Oh, yeah, yeah. With Franklin and Bash. Franklin and Bash is one of my favorite shows of the summer. Yeah. Uh, that, that comes back a week after Legends starts, so August 20th, I believe, yeah. is when it starts. Yeah. But Dustin Diamond has broken his money. Is that true? Uh, I didn't know Last that. I heard he was broke. Okay. That's why he did the book. Ah. Uh, Marvel is considering a Hulk standalone movie. Mark Ruffalo has confirmed that Marvel Studios is considering a Hulk standalone movie. People are calling for it. I think they are. For the first time, entertaining the idea of it, Ruffalo told Digital Spy on June 17th. When we did the Avengers, it was basically no. And now there is some consideration for it. Watch the video in the link in the ACC feed to hear Ruffalo's full answer, during which he also discusses what's in store for the Science Brothers in the Avengers Age of Ultron. A lot of people want to see a Hulk movie with the leader because they teased it in the um, Incredible Hulk movie. Sure. So it'd be cool. Yeah, I would like to see Mark Ruffalo get a chance. You know, all the other guys who played the Hulk got a chance at their own movie and, you know, they weren't all that great. But it would be fun to see him at least get a chance. I like the Incredible Hulk. I do. I like the second one. I'm not a big fan of the Hulk in general. Well, so. if you're not saying, yeah, it, well, I'm not the biggest fan either, but I thought it was a good movie. Yeah, okay. For, for what the material was. Okay. Because, uh, you know, I thought that the classic TV show was a good idea, and a lot of people love that. Because the second one played to that. Yeah. So I think if they do this next film, kind of like that, but add a little more humor, which we got in the Avengers from the Hulk, it's going to be pretty good. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Okay, with that, we're going to get into the main event of this episode. Okay, this was a doozy. I really enjoyed this episode. The week before might have been a little bit better. I think we might debate that a little bit. But let's talk about the Game of Thrones season four finale, which really felt like an end of a book called The Children. Circumstances change after an unexpected arrival from north of the wall. Danny must face harsh realities, Bran learns more about his destiny, and Tyrion sees the truth about his situation. 
with last week's battle between the Night's Watch and the Wild Ones, I really thought we'd reached the pinnacle of what we were going to see this season for fight scenes and special effects. But this Game of Thrones season finale made me feel terribly mistaken as this episode was more like Christmas than the penultimate one. Because we got more epic-sized actors along with character interactions that I thought were only part of my wildest dreams. Nico, were you amazed that this season finale followed up the penultimate episode on such an epic scale with every storyline we chipped in on having something to visually impress us? You know, I was impressed with this episode. I still maintain that the penultimate will be the best episode of the season, but this episode definitely gave it a run for its money. My friend and I were discussing this exact point poolside yesterday. He tended to agree with you, Dan, that this episode seemed to be even better than last week because it covered every single storyline and did so very well and left us off in a very interesting place in each story arc. Now, I really cannot dis- disagree with either of you that this is indeed all true, but when it comes to that epic battle at the wall, that sold me last episode for being my favorite of the season and one of the top episodes of the series. In each of the past three seasons, I have personally enjoyed the penultimate episode more than the finale, and this season, it stayed true to that. I think this is my favorite finale, though. Okay. I think everything had something to be excited about in it. Yeah, and so, everything got left off with a great cliffhanger or a really right. good wrap-up or, you know, just everything was treated so well that it's hard to argue that this wasn't the best episode. And from a technical standpoint, a story writing standpoint, it probably is. But you go back to the visual aspect of last episode, some of the cinematography that was done, all of that, that just blew me away. And I, I really can't make up my mind other than that it just felt felt better you know in right in my chest it felt like last i liked last episode better i would say out of the four finales though that we've had this is my most favorite it felt the most finalized okay again kind of last year's finale kind of gets away with it because it was the middle of the third book Mm -hmm. so i get why that didn't feel so finalized Uh but this was perfect yeah again one of the big surprises to me in this episode was stannis and the onion knight showing up at the wildland camp i thought white walkers were going to be what kind of resolved the issue between the Wild Link and the Night's Watch. But Stannis was a big surprise. God, it was amazing that, you know, huge special effects entrance thing. That was great. And some of it kind of rivaled the Dolphin up a little bit. Not when it came to the Giants, though. <laughs> right. Right. But still, wow. God, I really hope that they combine this story with John and Sam's adventures. Because I really want to see them interact on your night. Nico, what was your thoughts on the surprise of the effects that went into it? God, did it match up with the book? It most certainly matched up with the book and was one of the hardest spoiler secrets I had to keep the past few weeks because you kept mentioning ideas on what you thought Stannis and the Onion Knight were going to be doing, and I had to bite my tongue and not spoil this surprise because it was going to be a good surprise. This was great. I, I was just floored. Yeah, in the books, I was much in the same place you were prior to this point. Not exactly sure how John was going to be successful and not surrender the wall, but Stannis' arrival at the wall makes all the sense in the world because Melisandre has been talking about the war in the North and the battle with the Great Other. So it makes sense that Stannis would focus on the North and answer the call for men from the Night's Watch. The clues were there that he'd end up at the wall, but yeah. still, it was a surprise to most people watching the show that had not read the books. Well, it also, went over my head at first, and then I was like, wow, that's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Also, that overhead shot of the two flanking horse charges that completely took the Wildlings by surprise was brilliantly shot, and a lot of fun to see come to life on the screen. The Wildlings were so outnumbered that we didn't really get a real battle scene, but still, the almost slaughter of the Wildlings by Stannis' men was 
pretty epic to see. And it was important to show just how much they outnumbered the wildlings. Because the wildlings right. outnumbered the, the men of the Night's Watch by, you know, it was like something like a hundredfold. And then Stannis' army outnumbered theirs almost like double. So it was it was important. Because I think, I think Stannis has 20,000 men right. in, under his command. I think that's what they said. And I think Mance Raider had 10,000. Right. Anyway, overall, great scene and a huge surprise for most viewers of the show this week. And I think a lot of people really enjoyed that. Kind of see where it's going to go. Yeah. You know, as I said, I'm really hoping that Kamarabu will be formed between Jon Stan and the Onion Knight because I love all these characters. Mm-hmm. But um, Melisandre having her eye on Jon, that makes me a little nervous because I think emotionally he could sort of be manipulated right now because of being hurt over, you know, the whole situation with regret and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your thoughts on some of this, Nico? Well, damn it, Dan, you're asking me things I can't answer. Oh, man, <laughs> I mean, I'm doing it again. Yeah, don't ask me things like that because it makes me actually want to answer you, but I can't because that would probably be spoilers for everybody. Uh, no, let's just say that Melisandre liked burning people, especially royals, and she lost Jenry because the Onion Knight took ter- took him away, so she will probably be looking for a royal to burn in a sacrifice to help Stannis' cause. So who do we know that has royal blood? Well, uh, think about it. Think about that, and you will probably see how John, Sam, and the Onion Knight might have similar thoughts on burning people. So hopefully that answers your question without giving too much away. I won't say who the royal they're going to try and burn is, or where it's going to come from, or any of that, or how oh, that I progresses know. the story. Anyway, if not, I'm sorry for any of you that oh, feel spoiled. Yeah, so... I have a theory now. Okay, good. Because it's something I said that was important last week about a particular royal or attempted royal. Okay. Yeah. And that could tick some people off. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because they're an old man having an issue. I'm not going to confirm or deny that that theory is correct. Sam may be someone to watch with this. That's all I'm going to say. Yep. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm speculating. I'm not a book reader. Sorry, folks. (laughs) Well, I I absolutely know what's going to happen. And I'm trying to hint, but not spoil. And can want to kill me at the same time. <laughs> yeah. When I saw your question, I was like, damn it, dude, I can't answer that. Come on, man. I'm going to get my crossbow. Right. Oops, too soon. Moving to King's Landing to go there now. Once Cersei spilled the beans to her father about Jimmy being the father of her children, I really felt someone in the Lannister family was going to die. God, I really thought it was going to be Cersei preparing to get out of being executed, which, you know, we will talk about in a minute that I was horribly mistaken on. But for now, let's focus on my theory that Cersei's head still remains at a chopping block. Nico, is this a correct theory for me to have? Uh, what do you think about my musings about Cersei possibly getting killed in this episode? Was this something set up as maybe a fake out? to who really died in this episode to be honest dan this scene with cersei and her father and the confession was not in the books or at least it, to my knowledge it was not in the books so it was most probably a tv fake out technique we were probably supposed okay. to think that Cersei was in trouble or something terrible would happen to her as a result of the revelation of the truth of the, that the rumors about the parentage of her kids are in fact true. Now, I will hint that trouble is coming for Cersei, is coming Cersei's way, and it will have something to do with her behavior. But be it the incest or other actions as queen, she will have some trouble headed her way next season as she attempts to pull many of the same schemes that she has in the past, but no longer has her father's protection or ability to bail her out. So she's going to get her into some trouble because she still thinks she holds all the power but with Tywin dead maybe not oh so it'll be interesting we'll see well it'll be interesting kind of interesting <laughs> where Jamie falls. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And whether he's still willing to bail her out and help her out. That that right. becomes important as well. 
yeah, jumping on to other royalty, probably the, the anti-Cersei, we could call her, I guess. I really felt the anguish Danny was going through with having to lock up come the dragons, come for killing a little girl. Guys, to me, it really felt like her giving up her unborn child all over again. Yeah. But uh, I don't know about this, Nico, but I've kind of stuck through this situation because set up as a metaphor for a lesson Danny needs to learn about taking control of a kingdom as leader. What's your thoughts on this observation, Nico? And what does it kind of mean for Danny's story as we move forward? This was an emotional scene in both the books and the episode this week. In a way, this is important for Danny's future plot lines, but not necessarily in a teaching her a lesson sort of way, so much as not having her dragons when she needs them sort of way. I won't go into details, but her dragons being locked up leads to a, quote, rescue attempt to free her dragons and can lead, and it actually leads to a major change in Danny's story arc coming next season or maybe the season after that. It's it's hard to tell really when we're going to get to that point because the book timeline and the show timeline don't always necessarily exactly match up. But it's hard to really say any more without going too far down a path we have not seen yet. But her dragons being locked up in the crypt will play a role in her story's evolution whenever that happens in the next two seasons. So it's not really so much about teaching her a lesson as not having access to all of your tools. Right. Well, she's kind of going through this thing where she's being isolated. Mm -hmm. She lost Jorah two weeks ago. Now she's lost her dragons. You know, and the one, the black one, is still off away where she can't even find it. So she's got two locked up in the crypt and one that's feels like it's an abandoned her. Right. So, yeah, she she is very much getting isolated. Because she can't find Adario either. Right, yeah. He's off on his mission. Yeah. And speaking of losing team members, I really thought the wrap-up to Bran's story was going to be one of the slower parts of the episode. And actually, it turned out to be one of the most exciting. Because we dove head on into this world's fantasy aspects through us getting a full-on battle with White Walker. Because Bran being given the fate of the world is in your head, Ross. Even though the old man's saying, I've been watching all of you with 1,000 eyes, probably means the fate of the world depends on several of the major choices. Nico, what was your thoughts on this wrap-up for the season that seemed full of White Walks? Yeah, I was actually a little surprised that we actually got there in this episode because I thought they might stretch it out into the next season. But I'm glad they did get to this in the in the episode. Bran and the old man will have some very important discussions in the cave below the tree next season. And the old man will teach Bran to see with a thousand eyes, like he said he had been doing for these guys his entire lives. Bran had hoped that this meant that the old man was going to make him able to walk again, but unfortunately the old man said he would never walk again, but he would fly. By that, of course, he probably means that Bran will learn to use his warg abilities with more than just Hodor and Summer, but will will be able to take control of many other animals, including the ravens, like the three-eyed raven. As I said, some really interesting things coming from Bran at the below the great tree next season. Interesting. I think a lot of people were getting impatient for more fantasy aspects to be brought into the story. Absolutely. So Absolutely. I think it was good that they went here. We are five books in and we don't really, ha- we haven't really seen much White Walkers. Right. We've seen a couple Whites, which are the men that come back from the dead and serve the White Walkers, but we haven't really seen the White Walkers except for in the season two finale, the series premiere and the mid-season episode this season season when Craster's son was transformed into a new White Walker. And really, other than that, we haven't seen it. And we're five books in, in the book reader's side, and really haven't seen much from them either. He keeps saying dragons and White Walkers are coming, but, you know, 
Well, a lot of people are scared. Again, show watchers that the show's going to lose its integrity if it dives too much into fantasy. I, I think d- these. Best I disagree. Episodes, it's a fantasy story. It would right. lose its integrity if it didn't. Because I think this the past two episodes showed a good balance between the two. Yes. Yes. And so I'm I'm all for it. And I'm interested to see if Fran's ultimate goal with being a war is being able to control dragons. Okay. Interesting thought process. Yeah, definitely an interesting idea. I, I can't say yes or no or even maybe because like I said we haven't gotten that far yet it's a good idea absolutely because if he's able to take control of a dragon he could vastly adjust how the story plays out he could he could become the most important aspect of the story because if he can control a dragon more than Daenerys could he could ultimately determine who wins the battle or who you know right so that that's an interesting thought I had not thought about can Another real quick thing was Cersei's attempts to save the mountain. Yeah. I'm concerned it's going to turn him into white. Really interesting thought. I don't know if it's going to go that way. The Quyburn, who is the maester who isn't a maester, yeah. he said it is going to change him. So there's definitely something interesting going to come. I don't remember what happens with this. So I can't say what happens. I know they talk about it in the books. It wasn't one of the things that really stuck out for me. So... Okay. I can't really say. I know Quyburn becomes very important as Cersei sort of gets into her trouble next next season. So he's actually, and the things she's having him do are part of that fall. Okay. Yeah. And as for the wrap-up of Arya's story, I was really satisfied with the writers giving me a taste of what I wanted with their crossing pass with Brienne, because they were kind of impressed with each other. Mm-hmm. And then I thought it was very interesting how they took it in a different direction when it turned into basically an all-out brawl between Brienne and the Hound. Because I really think this is one of the most vicious fights I've ever seen on television between a male and a female character. Do you agree with that? That is it, an example. Caval George, R.R. Martin's epitale, has brought the fantasy genre into the modern age. Yeah, I totally agree that this is one of the most brutal and intense fights I've ever seen between a male and a female character on television. But I disagree that it means that George R.R. Martin's epitale has brought the fantasy genre into the modern age because this was not in the books. So this was written purely for the TV show. Okay. In the books, the Hound and R.R. Arya were seeking shelter at the inn at the crossroads, where they ran afoul of two of Gregor's, that's the mountains, men, and their squire. Okay. When the two groups came to blows, Sander killed Polliver and held off the tickler, as we saw in the episode earlier this season. But he was seriously injured in the fight due to his being so inebriated and hungry. Arya and the Hound were victorious that day, and though Arya dressed his wounds, they quickly became infected, much like we saw later in, in this season as well. Right. And with her still hating him, Arya refused to grant him the mercy of a quick death, as we saw in this episode. So they brought a lot of those aspects into their story and the major parts into the story we saw th- this season between them. But she abandoned the Hound to die under a tree by the Trident, the Trident River, and his fate becomes uncertain after that that point. Some of the remaining brave companions travel east to the town of Saltpans, where Rorge recovers and dons the hound's snarling helm, the one that looks like a dog and yeah. is where he got his nickname. And he they pick that up from his purported grave site. And then they embark upon a brutal spree of banditry across that region, culminating in the vicious sacking of Saltpans. Rorge is later killed by Brienne at the inn at the crossroads and prior to Rorge's death, Brienne acts on information that she received Received from a num- from a member of the Brave Companions that Brienne of Tarth defeats in combat named Timian, that Sansa Stark has been stolen and carried.
carried away by the hound. That's why she was actually hunting the hound and killed Rorge. Okay. Because he had the helm, then realized it wasn't the right guy. Her travels with... She, she then le- meets this guy named Septon Maribald. He's a uh, new god Septon, but he's also a warrior. Anyway, she starts traveling with him, and he takes her to a monastery on the Quiet Isle. On that isle, she speaks privately to the elder brother of the monastery and tells him of her quest and her and her past. And the elder brother informs her that it was the other sister that Sander made off with, the younger one, Arya Stark. So Brienne is shocked by that news because she believed Arya to be dead, much like we saw in this episode when they actually ran into each other. She thought she was dead. Anyway, the elder brother goes on to tell her that he is certain that Arya was with Sander at the inn besides the crossroads. He knows that they were headed for the salt pans, but beyond that, he tells her that all he knows for certain is that the hound is dead by the sword as he lived. Elder brother buried him personally and left his dog helm as a marker, a mistake he later realized as someone else found it and claimed it and went on with others to rape and kill at the salt pans, as I mentioned before. Many readers of the series believe that there are hints in what the elder brother has said about the hound to Brienne, that the elder brother considers the hound to be simply an aspect of Sander Clegney's personality and that Sander Clegney as himself may have survived and is living as a novice at the Quiet Isle Monastery. Readers have identified Sander as the novice gravedigger seen by Brienne earlier in in the episode or in that chapter. So you see, Dan, this scene in this week's episode is completely different from the ones in the books, but essentially gets the same place where Arya is on a boat towards Bravos and Brienne and Pod are left searching for Sansa and Arya without knowing where either of them are now. So what they did in the story kind of simplified a lot of things, got rid of a lot of places that Brienne and Pod had to go and brought it into a much simpler story by having them come across him and kill the hound there. The only problem with that is if the hound comes back in the books to be important as a novice at this place, like a lot of people are suspecting he is, what does that do since we actually see him die or dying in this episode? Yeah. So, so I thought it was really well done in in the TV show. It simplified a lot of a lot of story. Well, there were a lot of names and people you had to explain and oh yeah yeah all of that and that, yeah that wouldn't be too much. Of a show. Well, I think they could have done it because they they focused in on those people so much in season two. A lot of those these people are from season two when Arya was captured and in Heron Hall and the Brave Companions and then the Mummers and all of those people. So a lot of those people we have seen they were important they just in the third season was completely forgotten about them and other than chopping off Jamie's hand, it really was not important to the rest of the story. Quiet. I know you and I disagree with this because we're all in the details and stuff. But there are a lot of casual TV watchers that watch this show that would be like, there's too many characters, got too many storylines to keep track of. So this was to kind of, I think, alleviate that for them. Yeah, I definitely disagree with that because, yeah. as you said, I, I, I like details. I like going deeper. I love diving in. You know, th- there's a reason why I read a hundred novels in the Star Wars universe. Right. I love diving in and, and really digging into the, the nitty gritty. And George R. R. Martin does that. I mean, in his books, right. he will talk about a feast that is important. He will describe the, the entire thing in 20 pages. And you're like, all right, George, get to the point. But there's importance in everything that he's talking about because, you know, all of a sudden when the, the king starts choking and you have heard about all the different things that he ate and all the different things and how many different people were involved in preparing it and you're like oh man that's why this was so important okay i see i i get your point george 
but it sometimes drives general TV audiences crazy. Well, I mean, there is there is a need on network television to play to the lowest denominator. When you're playing with stuff like Game of Thrones right. or Walking Dead, you know, some of the better done television shows, Breaking Bad did this. You don't play to the least common denominator. You right. play to the people who love the show. And if you have to, if people have to go and read on the internet to understand, that's not necessarily a bad thing or to start discussing it on that's not necessarily a bad thing i know you may lose some viewers doing that but you're going to get some hardcore diehard fans doing that because look at doctor who it's a kid's show but they dive deep Going and out. it's it's been the most successful sci-fi show ever. Right. So I I think there's some argument that you don't necessarily have to appease the lowest common denominator. Right. So I I understand the point you're making. You're absolutely right that that is probably why they do a lot of stuff. But I'm arguing that they don't need to do that on this show. Well, moving on to the outcome of this fight, I really thought Arya was going to add Brienne to her list for killing the Hound, but ultimately she didn't seem to care because she, as we said, left the Hound to die. Nico was just considered as a dark turn for Arya? Can is she headed towards the wall to find Jon Snow because she thinks that's the only family she has left? Or is there another motive that she has to explain? Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, she's actually headed to Bravos because the ship's captain refused to take her to the wall, but she was willing to take her to Bravos after she said the magic words, Valar Magarlis, which translate to all men must die. Remember when Jaqen Hagar right. teaches Arya Stark these words when he departs and gives her that small coin? Although he really does not explain the meaning to her, and nor does anybody else later, but she gets begins to use the words in her prayers of people she wants dead. And in this episode, Arya says the words to Ternicio Teres, the captain of the Titan's daughter. He replies with Valar Doheris, which means all men must serve, and is the common response to Valar Magarlis. He then offers her passage to Bravos, which is where he was going. That's important. Now, she did initially want to go to the wall because she knew that John would take care of her and provide for her. But when Ternicio Teres said he was going to Bravos, she could not help but be intrigued and travel to Bravos as well. And it is a great decision story-wise that she does that because it's just really good going forward for Arya. I really enjoy her time in Bravos and where her story goes. It's really good. It does take a little bit of a dark path, but it's a good dark. It's not like a vast changing of the character or a seduction of the dark side or anything like that. It's like she has been through some awful stuff yeah. and she's kind of processing that. It does go a little dark. She kind of does a, some stuff that you're hoping for, I think. And it, it really gets interesting in Bravos and how she survives, how what she does, who she becomes. All of this is really fun stuff. It's is Danny in Bravos? No, she's in Me uh, Marine. Mir yeah, Marine. Is there a major character in Bravos right now? Well, the Iron Bank is in Bravos. Okay, so they are kind of a major character in a grand scheme of things. There, and as I, I mentioned, Mark Gaddis character is actually going to cross the Narrow Sea and come to Westeros next season. Interesting. So she'll be in Bravos. The bank will be in Bravos. Some other people may show up in Bravos. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Remember, a major character we still are going to talk about today is getting on a ship. 
So Correct. there's always the possibility that Go that boy. character could be in Bravos or elsewhere in the free cities. And, so and he could be taking a dark path as well. That is true. That is that true indeed. And finally with Tyrion, a story we've been waiting for answers on for weeks now. It felt like I really get why he killed Shay and his father because of the old "fool me once, shame on me; fool me twice, shame on you" rule. Plus, come on, Tywin said it coming for a very long time. But my question about all of this was: Was Jamie in on it? Kind of like the last time Tyrion got played by. No, Jamie had no idea that Tyrion was going to kill their father. He was merely helping Tyrion escape and board that ship to the Free Cities to get away from the headsman. So he had no idea that of the Tywin's affair. Nope. Any of that stuff? Okay. Nope. If Jamie had known that Tyrion would kill their father or had known about Shay, he would have helped him escape still, or he would not have maybe helped him escape, or at least he would have escorted him all the way to the ship if he was going to help him escape to prevent him from going after his father. Jamie was not a part of this assassination plot at all, and if he had known about what his father was doing with Shay, he would have taken precautions and escorted Tyrion all the way to the boat. Yeah, okay. Okay, One of the aspects I love about Tyrion is how he uses his wits to overcome his enemies. Guys, I really thought it put him above the more dislikable and vicious members of his family, like Cersei and Joffrey. But now killing his father kind of makes Tyrion not so different. Is this something that could potentially diminish what makes this character so great, Nico? I personally don't think so. I love that Tyrion warned Tywin if he called her a whore one more time, he would kill him. Yeah. And when Tywin was dumbfounded by Tyrion falling in love with Shay and said, what, the whore? Tyrion was good to his word and shot him. In the books, he shoots him in the gut and he bled out and vacated his balls all in one moment. Yeah. But it was more dramatic that he had to reload and shoot him again in the chest. So I was alright with that change for TV. Ultimately, the same end was achieved. But no, I don't think this diminishes Tyrion or makes him less likable as a character. I think, you know, we all despised Tywin. So him right. killing Tyrion, or Tyrion killing Tywin, we saw somewhat justified. And we'll talk about that in a little minute. Yeah, it was kind of a yes moment, I guess. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad they didn't do the bowels thing. <laughs> That's too much even for HBO. Well, you know, there was a there was a joke going on in the book that everyone assumed that Tywin just crapped gold because he had so much okay. of it. So Tyrion shot him in the in the bowels and he vacates his bowels and Tyrion says, "I guess you don't crap gold," <laughs> and then walked away. That's it was nice. funny. It was funny. So like it was a missed comedic opportunity. But I think they were going for the intense drama yeah. of it. So like throwing in that that humorous thought that Tyrion had would have maybe spoiled that intensity of that that scene. I always wish there was like a deleted scene. <laughs> or Dick Clinch did it that way. Yeah, that would be that would be funny. Because I could see it play that. It'd be hilarious. Yeah, that that would be a lot of fun to see. Yeah, absolutely. Also, just succumbing to vengeance takes Tyrion off the path of being the savior Barriss saw in his vision since he's kind of now become the killer he was falsely accused of. You know, that's interesting. I had not thought of it that way. Tyrion is definitely not going to be able to work within the system now that he has to be smuggled across the narrow right. seat to the free cities, much like Danny and her brother were so many years ago. So does that mean that Tyrion will be off the path of being a savior to the realm? Most likely for a while it does, as he is now headed to the east. But forever? Well, forever's a long time, and he still has many parts to play in this story. Remember when I said his hardship 
apps were just beginning? Well, this is partly what I meant. Also, things get much better and much worse for Tyrion, but not necessarily in that order. As far as that goes, I don't want to spoil anything, so just know that his story gets very interesting across the Narrow Sea. As I mentioned, a lot of people are starting to show up over on that side, so it's going to be interesting. It's going to be like the Lion King. Well, there's definitely going to be a lot more interactions on the the Free City side of the Narrow Sea, much like we saw in the early parts of this series in Westeros, where random characters would run into each other or have interactions outside of their normal realm. So you would see the Hound running into so somebody, or you would see the Bloody Mummers running into Jamie and, and Brienne. And I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, so when you see it happen on across the Narrow Sea, it really progresses the story over there forward and moves everybody's stories in different directions. And we meet some new characters over there, which is really interesting. Next season, we're going to see a lot of stuff in Dorne after, you know, of yeah. course, one of the princes was killed in King's Landing and Myrcella is in Dorne as a hostage. So is that going to cause things to go on there? We're going to see a lot of stuff in Dorne. We're going to see a lot of stuff across the Narrow Sea or maybe even see somebody from Dorne across the Narrow Sea. It's, there's a lot of stuff coming. It's going to be really interesting. It's going to be very different from what we've seen so far. And a lot of story arcs that seem to be stalling out maybe get put on the back burner and new story arcs and new things come to the forefront and it's going to get really interesting and we're going to be talking about a lot of different characters than we were this season next season way to mix it up yeah i mean still a lot of the main characters we're still going to talk about john we're still going to talk about sam stannis the onion knight melisandra all of those people and we're still going to talk about cersei marjorie everybody in king's landing quiburn becomes important as i mentioned earlier those we're still going to get stuff at King's Landing, but we're now going to have two different story arcs across the Narrow Sea. We're going to have what Tyrion's doing. We're going to have Danny's. Can I like you, venue for some We're going to have uh, Arya's stuff across the Narrow Sea as well, so there's going to be a lot of stuff, a lot of different places, and a lot of different characters. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited to see new venues. Yeah. And that's why Bravos was introduced this season into the beginning credits, exactly, because they did the, the, the Iron Bank, which is really important, but now Arya's headed to Bravos. It's going to be a major arc next year. There's going to be a major thing in Bravos. It's going to be really cool to see what real world city they used as an, you know, as a shooting location for Bravos. So it's going to be that's interesting. Definitely. Yeah. Cause my last point, obviously killing the hand of the king could be seen as wrong by a lot of people, but I could also see where Tyrion killing his father can be seen as a heroic act, as it saved both of his siblings from a fate that they did not want. Nico, did you pick up on this justification towards Tyrion's actions as well? You know, no, Dan. I, I saw this as retribution for not loving his son all of Tyrion's life and being a terrible father to him. I didn't see it as, as a heroic action. I did not try to justify his killing as heroic or as saving his siblings from being forced to live the lives their father wanted, I merely saw it as justified due to Tywin's, Tywin's horrible treatment of Tyrion his entire life and his betrayal of Tyrion by both allowing Cersei to push through a false accusation and then pronounce him guilty despite knowing that he was in fact innocent, and the betrayal of sleeping with Shay and keeping her as his personal whore despite forbidding it of Tyrion. For those reasons, I saw justification in his retribution and killing of his father. Okay. So I saw it more as retribution rather than as a, a heroic action. Yeah, I just want to look at it from both sides. It definitely felt justified to me. Oh, yeah. And that's about as far as I could go, <laughs> you know? 
Well, you know what I always said? I hate Tywin Lannister. Uh, absolutely. So. You've said that essentially from the first scene we saw him. Yes. I think that was on the battlefield in season one when Tyrion meets up with the Lannister camp and when he first meets Braun. So, yeah, I think you said from that moment on you hated Tywin. This is a very glorifying season for me because mm-hmm. characters that tick me off got killed off. Yep. Got what was coming to them. So I like that. Much less horrific than the a Red Wedding. Yeah. Oh my. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm looking forward to next season. New venue, new location, bigger budget. Yep. It's going to be good stuff. Absolutely. So with that, I think we'll move on for this season yep. for Game of Thrones. Okay, we're going to talk about a show that uh, Nico had been covering for ATA until Disney bought the franchise. They kind of put this show on the hiatus. Yep. But thankfully, Netflix came in to save the day to wrap up the show for the final season. But to keep you guys up to date on everything and so you can follow our discussion a little bit easier, we're going to talk about the series in its, ty- in its entirety. So get ready, Star Wars. We're going to talk now about the entire series called Cartoon Network and Netflix, Star Wars to Clone Wars. <laughs> The Grand Army of the Republic, led by Yoda, with Mace Windu, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Anakin Skywalker, and other Jedi Knights, fight the new droid army of the Separatists. I saw the movie that kicked off this series of teams. God, I loved it. But I found myself having a hard time getting into the show during the first season when it was running standalone. Because I just didn't see the relevance to the overall story of the prequel trilogy. My tune changed once they went into multi-episode story arcs. Nico, what were your thoughts about this series when you first started watching it? Dan, I loved it from the beginning. You and I talked sometime around season two, and I told you how much I really enjoyed the series because I, it was filling in a lot of the gaps between the second and third movies in the prequel trilogy and how I really enjoyed just getting more Star Wars. While I agree that the quality of the series did improve greatly when the series began using the multi-episode story arcs, I actually really enjoyed some of the standalone episodes from the beginning, but without Without a doubt, the series got better and better each season, and a big part of that was the multiple episode story arcs that started sometime mid first season or late first season. Yeah, yeah, I'd say late first season mm-hmm. was the way to go, and the big part of that it kind of began in the season finale because season one was the introduction of Cad Bane for the bounty hunter characters. Yep, that was a big part of just making it so much more exciting. Cad Bane was a great villain that they came up with. Oh yeah, and I also on top of that love that we got to see the progression called Boba Fett to the character we know of the original trilogy. Yeah, Dan. Boba Fett was one of the characters that hardcore Star Wars fans of the 1980s absolutely fell in love with during Return of the Jedi and wanted to know more about him. Getting to see it in the prequel films left many of us underwhelmed, but with the added story arcs and screen time available in this series, The Clone Wars, I felt like we finally got much of that backstory we'd always wanted. So that was definitely one of the aspects of this series that really captured my attention. And much of that came about through the addition of the entire Bounty Hunter story arc, as you mentioned, and the great addition of that new character, Cad Bane, in this series. That was so well done. Well, I love that episode that was a reference to the Magnificent Seven. Yeah, that was. With the, with the Bounty Hunters and one samurai guy. Yeah, that was so good. He, he was really, really cool. And then how they played it up again when uh, Obi-Wan went undercover yep. as a Bounty Hunter. Yep. That was very cool, too. And those stories took place all throughout the series. Mm-hmm. Primary focus on the Bounty Hunters was in season two, but um, there was just some great stuff. On. They always seem to come back at just the right time. Yes. And they were great reoccurring villains. Yep. 
especially Cad Bane. Well, reoccurring villains that were sometimes also forced allies. Yes. That was always a good story arc as well. Much like that annoying space pirate Hondo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a fun character voice by uh, Jim Cummings, who was a very well-known animated voice for a lot of things. Yep. So that was very cool that he was a part of this show. And Cad Bane almost could have been a movie villain. Oh, yeah, I, I could see that. So many villains better than Grievous. That's all I got to say. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret about Grievous that made me like the character a little bit more uh, a little bit later in our discussion. Very cool. Got season two and three also. I thought it really took a good look at Anakin, at Padme's relationship, in a way that was a lot better than the movies, as the romantic friction between them came out really through their different political views. Got Anakin somewhat loyalty to the Chancellor. Yeah, I totally agree, Dan. So much better in the series than in the films. I think that if they had taken a, a bit of what we saw in this series and and put that in the films rather than some of the scenes we got, it would have gone over a lot better. Well, Lucas went more romantic, Romeo and Juliet with it, and this more felt like real life getting in the way. And, and it felt like, you know, relationship between political, you know, leaders that dissolved. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it felt almost like something got a scandal a little bit. Okay. But again, I mean, more watered down for, I don't want to say kids, but the Star Wars feel. Where, you know, Star Wars is, gets dark, but it still remains fun. Does that make sense? It does, absolutely. I understand. And so that's that's what they went for, and I really liked it, and, and just how it made the relationship feel complicated. Uh-huh. And really, a lot of their political views and clashes kind of gave us a frightening understanding of why the Republic was failing, as it kind of matched up with our real-life society, and economic problems and stuff like that that the country is dealing with today. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm not going to be you know, paranoid conspiracy theorists would say the sky is falling out of government. But you could <laughs> right. relate to it. You could relate, exactly. Come, especially that episode where Padme had to uh, give that speech to help the people and the Emperor or Chancellor Palpatine kind of turned it around to his benefit. Yeah. So that was interesting. I also really liked how they developed the clones, each of their own individual parts. With my favorite Rex, come, I really enjoyed him out of all of them. Got some of his stories. Yeah. Especially the General Grell arc. Yeah, yeah. And I really liked that squad that was a trading that we were introduced to at the beginning of season four that were inspired by the janitor that was that fell clone oh right that was a great arc as well yeah yeah i had forgotten about that yeah absolutely dan the clones were another of the major reasons why this series was so successful by actually giving the clones personalities and multiple story arcs and episodes to get to know them it made us care about the clones and understand the betrayal of the clones with the order 66 so much more rex was one of the best for sure but i really enjoyed the arc troopers story arc and how they were trained that was one of my favorite yeah. clone trooper episodes. Remember the ARC troopers were alpha class advanced recon commandos and believed to be the best of the best. I felt like they were like Navy SEALs or Army Rangers and that made them super exciting to me because I love Navy SEALs. I don't know about you Dan but those were some of my favorite episodes about clones. Oh yeah. God, I love the sense of honor that they had with each other. Yes. It was great stuff. One of the video games that was pretty cool came out for Xbox was Close Republic Commando. Okay. And you actually ran like a first person where you had your own squad. Oh nice. Nice. And the way that game was run, you got really close to your team. Kind of like, this would be a really cool story. Or, yeah. You know, a short film or something. Was that I, an Xbox exclusive? Yes. Ah, uh, that's why I didn't get to play it. <laughs> and so I'm like, this is kind of cool. Um, I wish they would, you know, do a short film or story or a book about this. And sure enough, Star Wars Clone Wars captured a lot of that. Yeah. So that was really cool. 
I wish they had done it as a PS3 game then. <laughs> yeah, it was a really fun game. Cool. Um, and you got to it was like got to do the Battle of Geonosis. Oh, cool. And Cash Week and actually a lot of stuff we saw on the show. Oh, really? Cool. Cool. Yeah, it sounds like an awesome game. If I had an Xbox, I'd go <laughs> go and get it. Yeah, and and the main character was a lot like Rex, so that was cool. But they came up with it before Clone Wars. It came out when Episode Three came out. Okay, so like 2006. Yeah. Okay. And speaking of developing characters, because Soka Tano was brought in as a Jedi apprentice for Anakin, because I know. A lot of fans thought she was annoying at first, but I thought she made Anakin's character more likable. Kind of eventually grew, get to this strong female Jedi that I would like to see the next trilogy focus on. I agree, Dan. Initially, I was concerned by her appearance and felt she was she had to eventually die before the end of the series because she never appeared in the films. Unfortunately, in the ending of the series early and rushed final season, we didn't get to see the wrap up of her story arc, which is something we will go into much more detail later when we talk about the final season. But I really grew to love her character. I thought she was a great addition to the story and I agree that she helped to make Anakin's character much more likable than maybe he was in the films and would have otherwise been here in this series. Because this series was great in introducing and promoting strong female Jedi and Ahsoka was definitely leading the charge in that respect and I greatly appreciated her development in this series. I just wish we had gotten to see the end of it but we'll talk about that in a minute. Well, this was something Lucas was very big on with his series. He wanted it, you know, he had raised a daughter. And that is what went into a lot of Ahsoka. Of course, his experience with raising a teenage daughter. Okay. So I thought that was really cool how that was in there. And actually, his daughter wrote a few episodes of the show. Oh, I was not aware of that. Which is really neat. Yeah. So I, I thought that was a cool little personal touch that he put on this. Kind if that was so big to him, I was surprised if he didn't try to introduce it in the film. It would have been much better than a Jar Jar. Yeah. I think by that point, it was maybe too too far along in the process that they couldn't bring right. something like that in. And I just didn't think he thought about it. Enough. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, quite a nice addition to really, I thought it made Anakin more likable. Yeah, definitely. And as the show continued, it really did some great things to make us hardcore. Star Wars fans excited. Like, dig deep into the mythology of Mandalore, which is really explored in a lot of the novels, isn't it? Uh, there are a few novels, and especially in the early training of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah. Which was brought up on the show. Mm -hmm. And they also brought in a lot of characters uh, from the original series. Such as Grandma Tarkin, Chewbacca, and Admiral Akbar. They also even brought in called voices to make fanboys excited in general by having David Tennant voice the droid who built the lightsabers, which I thought was a great nod to Doctor Who. Got his trusty Sonic screwdriver. Yeah, I loved that episode. It was great. Got the younglings and everything. They, yep. They really developed them well. Yeah, and it showed Ahsoka in a almost mentor, like soon to be Jedi Knight, yeah. maybe eventually taking on a youngling and a, a Padawan herself. It was interesting to see that and Anakin trust in her to do that mission and how important it was in a youngling's advancement. That was a big step forward in her evolution. Oh, yeah. Because of character, yeah. Yeah. Same with the Chewbacca episode. Mm -hmm. Can Grand Moff Tarkin, whoa, did he really get to the distrust in the government? And Anakin's kind of loyalty to the Chancellor. Yeah, it was interesting to see the early aspect of Moff Tarkin. Okay, just his skepticism of the Jedi. Yeah, in general. yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, you gotta love how it kind of backfires on him. <laughs> right. Okay, on the note of nods, I have to say, one of my favorite arcs of this series was the story that borrowed from George Lucas's original draft of Star Wars, where Obi-Wan, Anakin, and Ahsoka met the family that originated the Force. Okay, we got to see a glimpse of Darth Vader, yeah. which is awesome. Yeah, you know, that was a really interesting and sort of trippy episode. Yeah. I like the Trinity sort of feel to the father, son, and daughter as the son being the embodiment of the dark side and the daughter being the light side. 
I thought it was interesting that this episode seemed to be the first real indication of Darth Vader as a possibility for Anakin. I mean, we all knew it was coming and saw it when he murdered the Tusken Raiders that killed his mother in the second film, but this was the first real premonition of what was to come. Also, going deeper into the Star Wars mythos, it was believed that when Anakin refused to become the new Keeper of Balance at the end of this episode, he had in fact set off a disastrous chain of events. With the death of the Ones, the galaxy began to slide into darkness and the number of conflicts and chaos that took place over the next 65 years were evidence enough of that. Eventually, Luke Skywalker, as the Supreme Jedi Master, believed that the Jedi and the Sith must become the new ones, and they must keep the balance themselves. But now that the new recanonization is happening, who knows if that is still true? (laughs) That was an interesting story arc that was really some of the last stuff that I read before I eventually moved on to other stories. Well, this is the thing here. This... Clone Wars is considered continuity. So the one is, but the right. the fact that Luke later became the Supreme Jedi Master and came to this realization and actually struck a deal with the Sith Lord at the time that they must all at all times keep a balance of the Force, otherwise everything would, you know, it would be disastrous for both of them. That probably is not canon anymore. But it does seem like a very good goal. Oh yeah, absolutely. For a, a new trilogy. If they go there, I'm not saying they have. Right, right. That seems like a very good outcome. Absolutely. <laughs> we just don't know where 7, 8, 9 are going. Because they always keep saying, well, we're not using the, you know, the books or the extended tro- the extended universe. But some of that stuff is going to slip in there. Oh, ne- absolutely. It necessarily has right. to. Right, because just the universe is set it up. That's how it's going to be. Yep. Got another character that was brought back for a mind-blowing story arc was Dark Maul. Got it really made me wish that he had continued on as a villain throughout the prequel, story, prequel trilogy instead of being killed off in episode one. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. Darth Maul was easily one of the three best parts of Phantom Menace, Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan being the other two. Yes. Initially, when I heard that they were having him return on this series, I thought it was just going to be a stunt. But the way they handled it was so, so well done that I ended up really loving it and thinking that it was the best possible way they could have done it on this series. So well done. Absolutely. And I agree with you. If Darth Maul had survived through to maybe even episode three, it would have been amazing. And, and even if Anakin had killed Darth Maul as part of his becoming the next Sith apprentice, that would have made a lot of sense to me as well. I mean, we so, saw yeah. that with him killing Dooku, Dark Tyrannus. Yeah. Uh, or most Count people Dooku. call him Dooku. Yeah, <laughs> most people remember Dooku more than Tyrannus, but yeah, absolutely. That, yeah. I, I think that would have been cool. I think with this show, they had proved themselves so well with their writing, I think, when they went to Cartoon Network. So we want to bring back Darth Maul. They're like, okay, you yeah, have probably a good idea. Yeah, okay. Well, let's see where you go with this. <laughs> and they did, and we got to see some characters that I was surprised to see, like Shizor from Shadows of the Empire, yeah, which is a novel I really enjoy, so I was very excited to see you know, the Black Star, some of that stuff in there. Yeah, that was really cool. His brother, Savage, yes. Savage something, I can't remember his name, but that was cool to see as well. Well, and then the Emperor coming under Darth Sidious yep. at the end was neat. Yeah. Although with the outcome of this Darth Maul story, in Clone Wars, I really felt truly established Obi-Wan as a tragic hero. Since he really lost everyone he ever loved, minus Luke, and I guess Yoda, but still maintain that hope that good could win in the end. Yeah, you know, the death of Satine, the Duchess, and essentially yeah. Obi-Wan's one true love was heartbreaking. If you read any of the books about Obi-Wan's training with Qui-Gon, you know that Obi-Wan once considered leaving the Jedi Order to be with Satine, and
then fight her rebellion on Mandalore. Kenobi later stated that had Satine asked him to stay with her, he would have left the Jedi Order to be with her. Knowing all of this made her death all the more tragic for me and really made me feel for Obi-Wan. You're absolutely right. He became a true tragic hero in this episode. Really great stuff and truly emotional content for a cartoon series. That was what was so great about this series was, yes, it's a cartoon, it's animated, but it dove deep into this realm of Star Wars and it dove into emotional content. It did dramatic things. It had some comedy and yeah. it wasn't Jar Jar Binks comedy. It was true comedy. And that was why this series was so successful was because it really felt like we could be watching a live action series, but it was animated. And it felt like Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was that Star Wars humor that we love. Can really, Original trilogy humor. Yes. Not, <laughs> not Jar Jar Binks humor. Can really, Obi-Wan's story with Satine, it makes what happens between him and Anakin that much more painful yeah, to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Sets it up as the one at that time, essentially, other than Yoda. We'll, we'll put Yoda to the side for the moment, right. but the one person left in his life that he loves, absolutely loves, and is his brother, you know? And, and the thing of it was, Anakin could have told him. Yeah. And they would have worked it out somehow. That's the tragedy of it. Yeah. That is the tragedy of it. If, if he had trusted his master and gone to his master and asked for help and uh, allayed some of his concerns, maybe some of this would have been or all of it could have been avoided because I really think the most powerful line of episode 3 is when Obi-Wan finds out about the babies and Padme and everything and he goes and I'm truly sorry that's the last thing he says to him and that just ugh, especially after watching this show it really just hits you because mm-hmm. you know he basically was saying I get it mm-hmm. you should have just come to me yep. and that yeah it's, it's sad and going along with the idea of endings the biggest plot hole in the series is the fate of Ahsoka after she decides to leave the Jedi Order following the being wrongfully accused of murder. Everyone, Nico, okay, including both of us, I think thought she was going to show up in season six. But when she didn't, we were pretty miffed. Yeah. Ultimately, Ahsoka leaving did a good job of finding the seeds of this trust in towards the Jedi that got him into fun that bird, Mace Windu. But I'm under the belief she's going to show up in Star Wars Rebels, the sequel series. God may possibly sacrifice herself, helping with getting the Death Star plans. You know, Dan, as I said before, and we discussed briefly last week off air, this was the single greatest disappointment I had with this series, and especially the final season. I felt like it was the major thing that everyone really wanted and needed to see after the cliffhanger that ended season five. Why this was not a part of season six? Well, only the creators know for sure. Anyway, I too argued that it would be great if she shows up in Star Wars Rebels, but I sort of disagree once again with your thoughts that she's involved with the Death Star plan mission because as Mon Mothma says in A New Hope, many Bothans died in bringing us these plans. I see her playing a much different role, often hiding her Jedi abilities so as to not draw attention to herself and and maybe even being killed on you know sight by the, the clone troopers if they were to see her. I'm not sure of the details or exact role she will play yet, but I do see her playing a different role than that necessarily. It, it definitely could go that way, but I tend to think it's going to be something else. I just know I want to see more of her and get an explanation for why she does not show up in the films or later if she survived the Jedi Purge, you know, not being a true Jedi anymore. Yeah, that's that's interesting thoughts. Yeah, so I, I mean, she wasn't around any clones, theoretically, when Order right. 66 came through, so she should have been spared the initial Purge. 
Right, because there's no reason to go after Shazad Jahai. Yeah, but could she have seen the message to return to the temple and been killed returning? Could she have seen... Well, why would the, she go back? Well, it, she she's still a Jedi, even if she's not a Jedi, you know? And if True. the Jedi are calling for help, I think she would respond. Even if she's not seen as a Jedi by the Jedi Council, she is a Jedi yeah. in her heart, and she knows, you know, and that's why I think she might have returned. But as soon as, uh, was it Obi-Wan changed the message to, or was it Bail Organa? One of them in, yeah. in the third movie changed the message to warn all Jedi to stay away and to go into hiding. So maybe she got that and went into hiding. So it, regardless, I just want to know. I want to know what happened, you know? Yeah. Just leaving it dangling is, is just that raw nerve ending that just, bad. every time I think about it, just hurts a little bit. That's why I wanted to somehow be on Rebels. Yeah, definitely. Go give us an episode explains it exactly even if it shows her dying that at least we'll know what happened to her because the same people are involved yeah with rebels so that's why i'm super excited about rebels when it's coming right so i'm like please just just explain this to us because she doesn't they have that vision of her as an adult in that one episode i don't remember that in the episode with the, the one kind of three aspects of the force remember she has a vision cover herself as an adult i don't remember that but i will definitely go back and watch that episode again yes she does have a vision of herself as an adult. okay so that's making me think she's still out Okay, good. But I don't know. I mean, still, give us an extra. All right. <laughs> okay, with the sixth season available, it's supposed to be on Netflix. Kai was satisfied that it filled in many of the files with the prequel trilogy. They're explaining what happened to Master Cycle DS. Adding more background to the tragedy of Anakin and Padme's romance. Justifying why the clones, who we viewed as heroes on the series, would betray the Jedi in response to Order 66. In my opinion, many of these aspects of these story arcs should have been a part of the movies. Do you agree, Nico? Absolutely, Dan. The second film could have focused much more on the clones and the war rather than a lot of the backstory stuff that just did not work. Also, crazy thing I just learned this week that I had no idea about earlier, and I promised a little bit earlier in our discussion. Did you you know that General Grievous was semi-force sensitive because he was an android who was infused with Master Sifo-Dyas's blood by Count Dooku. Whoa. I didn't know that, but it makes sense now. It is the little things like that that fill in the holes in the movies that this series was so good at doing. Of course, six seasons worth of material would never fit into the movies, but that's why we had the series to fill in all the details the films just couldn't dive into. Although, I would have liked to see them try with some of these things to make it work in the films. Where did you find that out about General Grievous? That was actually in the canon side of a story about sifo from the Clone Wars. So something was mentioned in the Clone Wars that I missed that mentioned something about a blood transfusion with General Grievous. Whoa. Yeah, and that's why he was so good at, at fighting Jedi and had killed so many. I get it. Yep. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, missed that in the movie. <laughs> it wasn't in the movie, I don't think. I think it was in the Clone Wars somewhere. And I mean, they did a horrible job of, of talking about yeah. General Grievous in the movies. He all of a sudden just showed up and you're like, uh, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Who is this? What is he? What, where? What? Yeah, exactly. That one makes more sense. Yeah, that's why we're talking about this show. Yep. Because it resolves a lot of it. One thing I was thinking about Order 66, though. Do you think after it was over, some of the Jedi felt guilt? I mean, some of the clones felt guilt. 
episodes cover what they had done absolutely actually there was if you read the wikipedia about the clones yeah. there is some talk about that some of the clones actually were able to resist and not act on order 66 okay those some of those may have had their uh, inhibitor chip damaged or had had their chip removed and when order 66 came through they were able to make the decision themselves yeah. so there's also the possibility that they had been conditioned away from it or some of them had you know there was some error in a batch of clones so those clones did not right. did not get embedded with order 66 in them so there there's actually some information about that in the wikipedia article it's actually pretty interesting i think that comes out of some of the books though so i'm not sure if it's canon because eventually the stormtroopers some of them aren't clones right eventually but the first generation stormtroopers right. are all clones so that, that could have been part of the beginning of that transition from clones to not all being clones. Yeah, because some of them started to fail to be yep. fully obedient. Because that would be cool if there was a couple clones that were rebels or fighting for the Rebel Alliance. I am almost 100% sure that that's going to be a story arc in Jedi Rebels. That would be cool. Uh, Star Wars Rebels. That would be cool. I think we are going to see some some clones that... It would be awesome if it was Rex. Yeah. You know, I, that was one thing I, I, I couldn't remember when I was we were preparing for this episode was what the fate of Rex was. Did they we... never explain it. Okay. Th that's what I thought, is that we never got a full a, a feel of where where he ends up. The last okay. time we see him is in the vision that Yoda has okay. of going to fight the Emperor. Okay. And then before that, it was when six... What's his name? Fives. Fives. Fives dies. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I because I was getting fives and Rex mixed up yeah. in my head because the fives story was so good in season six yeah. that uh, I really thought you know I, I it started to in my head later on like a, a couple months later when I was thinking back to it I was getting Rex's story and fives story mixed up and I was like wait did that happen to Rex or was that fives and I was like oh man you know so like that's another reason why I wasn't entirely sure what had happened to Rex in the end. Fives' story was good, kind of classic horse, somewhat. Yeah, yeah, you know, where your own brain turns against you, and, you know, and, and there's, like, these evil scientists messing yeah. with your brain and all that fun stuff. Yeah, it was it was great. It, it was cool. I mean, it, it, it still felt like Star Wars, but still nice new way to take it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I was also very glad the last arc featuring Yoda to explain why he backed out of his fight with the Emperor in episode 3. This is something I always questioned about Revenge of the Sith and Clone Wars giving Yoda that vision where he and the Emperor died which explains everything because if Yoda had died in episode 3 killing the Emperor there would really be no one to guide Obi-Wan and Luke and saving Anakin from being consumed by Darth Vader and Anakin needed to be saved to bring balance to the Force yeah I thought the explanation of how Yoda learned to speak with Qui-Gon beyond the grave and learned to hold on to his personality when he died and became one with the Force was a very important aspect of the original trilogy that was never really addressed nor explained and this was so well done that it made everything make a whole heck of a lot more sense it does however raise another question for me though how does Anakin learn to do it when he returns at the end of Jedi he was never taught that technique and it seems unlikely that he would just do it naturally possible continuity issue but then again he is the one right. so maybe it just happened oh well this was a great arc to end the series on and I would have been wholly satisfied if we had just gotten that damn Ahsoka arc in yeah. the final season I would have been a hundred percent on board with this final season as it was i was about 95 percent on board 
But for a final arc of the series. Oh, you, so good. And the references to Empire. And the music from Empire. Yeah. Great stuff. Well, this is what this needed to do. It needed to link it to the third movie. And he went into the cave, too. Yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. That was cool. Which is just a famous scene. Everyone knows. And it's awesome. Yep. God, that was Liam Neeson, right? The voice? Yeah, the voice. I want to say yes. If not, it was an amazing impression. I know he showed up on one episode. Oh, then it, it had to have been. Yeah. It had to have been. So, great stuff. Yep. I really enjoyed this series. It was, yeah. it was so good. And, you I know. I can't it, wait for the next one. It made my Friday nights. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and that's why I'm so excited for the next one. Yeah. That's coming. That's going to be spectacular as well. Yep. Especially since it's an era that we haven't really explored. Yeah, really. The in-between time between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope. And we will be taking a look at that show on ATA. I don't know how exactly it's going to work like, but we will be looking at that show. Yep. Because as you can tell, we're Star Wars fanatics. <laughs> yeah. Just a little bit. Yeah, especially based on our news section. Yeah, just a little bit. So with that, we're going to move on to the Airways Rundown section. You're watching CBS. Sci-Fi's powerful Mondays. FX. In USA. Characters welcome. ENT. We know trauma. Yeah, we're going to kick things off this week with my review of the amazing BBC America clone series Orphan Black with the season two finale episode entitled By Means Which Have Never Yet Been Tried. Season 2 ends with Sarah being forced to coincide with Rachel, who watches her latest boy. However, the clone club springs into action to save Later, Sarah meets a new ally, and it covers a terrifying new dimension of the conspiracy. I don't think I'm being hyperbolic when I say that besides the Game of Thrones penultimate episode last week, this Orphan Black Season 2 finale was the most technically outstanding episode of the entire 2013-2014 TV season. It also happened to be the best episode story-wise of the series so far, and that revelation at the end completely flipped the show on its head. After having the clones apart for most of the season, that clone club reunion and dance party at the end was just what we wanted to see all season. While that unforgettable finale moment where Sarah, Helena, Cosima, Allison, Felix, and Kira all take part in some free-spirited dancing looked like a lot of fun, it was a hugely difficult technical challenge for creators Graham Mason and John Fawcett and the cast and crew, but one they knew they wanted to conquer from the start of the season. Up to this point, the series had never done a four-clone scene before, let alone a dance scene with all the clones interacting with each other. It was certainly the most complex thing that they had undertaken to date. The scene where Helena shows up in the loft and meets Cosima and Allison. Sarah's there. Kira jumps into Helena's arms. That scene and the dance party took two full days to shoot. The creators of the show described the complexity of the shoot in a recent interview. They said, The way that that was done is the first day, I think Tatiana Maslany began as Cosima and we shot all of the Cosima parts for both scenes. Then she switched to Allison and we shot Allison for the meeting Helena scene and the dance party. And then the next day we came back and she started as Helena and we shot all the layers and bits for that with three doubles, three different doubles, and everyone's changing at the same time. So every time Tat changes, the other girls changed also. Not only did all four clones of Clone Club dance together, but they were all each interacting with Felix at the same time. That was all part of the technical challenge of doing this dance shot and the reason that I said before besides the battle at the wall in Game of Thrones this was the most technically difficult and amazing episode of the entire TV season. In truth there was one long shot that was done and designed 
design for the dance party, in which Felix cleverly began with Cosima, then interacts with Allison, and then finally interacts with Sarah. It was actually all shot as one shot, and then, in the end, because it was a little long for the episode, and they were trying to shorten it up, they ended up intercutting it and giving it a bit more pace. It was definitely a huge technical challenge, and it worked so well. Although we all sort of knew a mega twist was coming in this episode, a deepening of the mystery behind the sisterhood like no other we've seen before, nothing could have prepared us for the reveal that not only are there a contingency of male clones running around in the world out there, we've known one of them for the entire season. Mark the Prolethean is is one of a few, too, and it's ripping open everything we thought we knew, and it blew the goddamn hinges off the series, but in a great way. To say we are all a little shell-shocked after this episode would be a huge understatement. The clone experiment is now bigger than the Dyad, it's bigger than Rachel, and it's bigger than our once-tiny little clone club. Project Lita's brother arm, the appropriately named Project Caster, has revealed itself to be the series' next great mystery. In addition to figuring out just what the hell Topside is, Orphan Black, you beautiful beast, you've done it again. There are so many things to talk about in this episode. Rachel's lost an eye, and maybe her life. Ethan Duncan's dead. There's a baby clone, and her name is Charlotte. Delphine has been shipped off to Frankfurt, and Paul has returned with an army. And that's to say nothing of Cosima and Scott's evil genius and the epic four clone dance scene all of that was important and i'd like to talk about it for days but all i've seemed to be able to talk and think about is mark to have the highly unsettling Ari Millen join the series as the male version of the clone experiment, effectively changing everything, was a bold and downright inspiring choice. The actor has shown a quiet but gifted restraint all season. He's always looked to be holding on to more just below the surface. Does he know that he's a clone? He has to, right? If he truly went AWOL, he had to be serving in a clone army unless they introduced a single clone into each company or battalion or even brigade level. Also, is he for or against the clone movement? And now with Gracie as his wife carrying Helena's clone babies, will all the shadowy powers that be want him even more than his sisters? Because let's be real, the female clones cannot reproduce, except of course Sarah. Do we know if the males can or cannot? I suspect that safeguard was probably also introduced in the males as well, but we just don't know for sure. Also, it's not all that hard to see how far more valuable an army of male clones might be, particularly to the government, which seems to have had a hand in this whole thing, at least at the beginning. Does it still now have its hands in this? How much do the male clones know? Are they fully aware? Will they be as willing to fight against the dyad and the government as the ladies? And just who has their best interests at heart? Does anyone? More than answers, this episode left me with questions. So many questions I'm dying to dissect. Will we ever see Delphine again? Why did Helena lie to Art and Felix about setting fire to the Prolethians? What was her motive? Will we ever see Jesse again? And while we're on the topic of Helena, where was the government t- taking her? And why was Mrs. S so complicit in this? Sarah will never forgive me. Yeah, but what exactly did you do? She asked Paul to play double agent again, so he's on the side of the government and who else? Is he going undercover again as the dyad agent? What exactly is topside? How were they successful in the next generation of clones, namely Charlotte? Where did she come from? Does Rachel know about her? How was she able to survive if you were doing true science and not have the exact material and methods that succeeded in her creation? So many questions I want answers to, but we'll have to wait until next season to get them. Okay, final thought before I go. So Cosima, Scott, and Kira's plan to free Sarah involved a lot of luck slash amazing aim on Sarah's part. But come on, it was hard not to love it when that pencil shot out of that fire 
fire extinguisher and into Rachel's eye. After the fake out with Helena last season, I'm highly dubious about Rachel being dead, mind you, but hey, a vengeful eye patch wearing Rachel will be a lot of fun next season as well. There was a lot to love about the Orphan Black finale, which put our heroes in a very intense dark place as the hour began, with Rachel in full control. The reveal of a male clone strain is a huge move that could make for great storytelling or prove a huge mistake, but that's for the writers to figure out in season 3. I have all the faith in the world because this is easily one of the best written shows on TV of late and they have not steered us wrong yet. So join me again next season for the third season of Orphan Black, now featuring a set of male clones in addition to the nine we've seen Tatiana Maslana play so far. Alright, finally we're going to move on to my review of the new FX series Fargo with the season one finale episode entitled Morton's Fork. Molly takes the lead while Gus follows a hunch. Buster takes control of the situation. Ken Melville finds a new target. Fargo is a series that warrants long talks over good food and drinks and lengthy essays on its finer points and place in our current television culture. I have struggled after nearly each and every episode, wondering where and how to hone in on the most important parts. For now, I'll say that I was grateful to discover that Noah Hawley's vision, like the film that inspired him, ultimately revealed itself to be a morality play, one which presupposes that genuine evil exists and anchors good in both the seemingly mundane moments like time spent watching TV with our families and a decision to take responsibility. It's rare and refreshing for a series to take such a definitive stance on the nature of morality. As this episode Morton's Fork faded to white, Fargo's moral compass landed squarely on good rather than evil with Lorne Malvo sporting six new holes in his body and Lester Freeman probably frozen in a backwoods lake in Montana, the earth having swallowed him whole. Ultimately, it was a satisfying finale because the bad guys got theirs, but it wasn't always clear that things would turn out the way they did. Heading into the episode, the options were nearly endless. Lester could have gotten away, proving that his wriggling deviance could get him out of any situation. Malvo could have disappeared into the shadows, reiterating the theme that alpha predators will always lurk in dark corners. Or, as was actually the case, good could have prevailed, providing a happy ending for this black comedy. All three outcomes were equally likely because Fargo's characters were both lovingly crafted and disposable, and the series' dark humor opened up the possibility that anything could happen. That sense of uncertainty and unease is what made Fargo such a special miniseries. It's already one of the best examples of the genre that will flood your small screens in the next few years as television gets hot for the limited event. And good luck to those who follow because Fargo has set the bar awfully high. In playing with the format that tells a complete story that won't be revisited, creator Noah Hawley gifted us with characters we adored and despised, but in a good way, and dispensed of them in equal measures with unflinching violence. He treated the project as an almost entirely close-ended deal, resisting any temptation to say, if it works, let's keep it going. I say almost entirely close-ended because it's easy to imagine Fargo Season 2 brushing up against Season 1 in some way. Couldn't you see Mr. Wrench making an appearance in whatever story comes next? Or possibly, as I mentioned last week, having Season 2 be a prequel set around the Sioux City massacre that Deputy Salverson's father was involved with as a state trooper. 
As it were, characters were arced out, cases were solved, and the story reached its finite conclusion, while the setting, the real star of this show, feels as if it will live on forever. From the very start, Fargo was a show about a place populated with lively characters, much like the vibrant Harlan County of Justified, and the disruption that occurs when an invasive species like Lorne Malvo comes into town. The elements of nature often played a part in the action, culminating in that wild blizzard shootout of episode 6, and Malvo repeatedly referring to the natural order of the wild as a life philosophy. So it made sense to me that some cosmic force fought back against those who caused a disruption in the otherwise peaceful Great White North. Malvo was ultimately undone by his spirit animal, a lone wolf that beckoned Gus grimly toward Malvo's temporary hideout. And the earth caved in to put an end to Lester, who'd been on the lam because a simple arrest wouldn't have been enough to atone for all the disarray he caused in Bemidji. But another beautiful thing about Fargo was that it wasn't just about one thing, not even close. Thematically, it was rich with ideas. Stavros, quick question, whatever happened to him in the end? But anyway, he brought religion into the mix. Bill represented relentless optimism and the idea that man is not corruptible. Malvo proved that man is corruptible and took joy in infecting innocent people with evil as some sort of Lucifer figure. And Lester was our Faust making a pact with the devil. However, Fargo was best at exploring the more clear-cut themes of good versus evil, and that rang truest when the writers decided that Gus would be the one to off Malvo in the end. Gus, the man who couldn't shoot a gun except when he was aiming at the woman he was currently courting, found his redemption from letting Malvo go way back in the first episode by killing Malvo dead in his cabin. Some viewers may have wanted to see Molly, the series' hero, take Malvo down, or some may have wanted to see Lester do the deed as payback for pushing Lester's own life out of its orbit. But giving Gus the duty makes the story simpler and more honest and gives Fargo's purest character a well-earned victory. Gus never understood the riddle of the rich man who tried to end all of the world's suffering, but he was very aware of the idea of doing what you could. So he took out Malvo because it was what he could do. While not strictly legal, morally we could let it pass. The big showdown between Lester and Malvo was quietly perfect. I assume Lester was yapping on the phone like he was in a shouting match in order to draw Malvo into his room where the bear trap would close on Malvo's leg so that Lester could put a bullet in his melon. Of course, Lester missed the shot because, well, he's Lester. But the situation maintained the predator allegory as Malvo was baited and hunted. Fargo made interesting use of Agents Budge and Pepper throughout the series. Ultimately, their contribution to the real story was minimal. They were great characters, but they were never central to anything truly relevant. Stavros and Don are in a similar category, but they never felt useless. They felt more like fun window dressing. I think Fargo as a series may have peaked with episode 5 through 8, which made for unbelievable television. But I'm not sure there was any way to make this finale much more satisfying. Here's hoping that other miniseries take notice of how Fargo was crafted and use it as inspiration. I can't wait to see what season 2 brings us next year. Join us when it returns. Alright, with that, we're going to wrap up our reviews for this season, as we don't have any voicemails this week, but when we return in the fall, we really, really do want to hear from you guys a lot more, and if you want to be a part of the show, just leave us a voicemail, and you can do that by calling us at 773-809-3363, give us thoughts, feedback, a review of many of the new shows coming in the fall, anything you haven't heard us talk about before, anything you want us to talk about, or just random thoughts about anything that you're watching, 
you can even talk to us about movies. It's not what we cover here, but we'd love to hear about it. And so just, you know, we want some more involvement from you guys. We know you're out there listening every week. We'd love to hear some of the things you want us to talk about, some of the things upcoming, some of the things that maybe you don't want to hear, hear us talk about anymore. Whatever it is, just drop us a line. Again, 773-809-3363. And we'll play your thoughts on air. God, we're going to be covering some of the big new shows to come out of the fall, like Gotham Head Slash. So really, we'd love to hear about those shows too. Yep. Well, leave us a voicemail. God, also, Arrow is going to be a part of ATA again now, come with Longbow Hunters, the host of that show, Moving On. So leave us a voicemail about that as well. God, with that, come, I think it's time to move on to closing for our finale episode of this ATA season. So Nico, tell everyone what we're going to be doing until we come back. Sure, we will be taking a hiatus for a few weeks and then returning for a Comic-Con recap episode in early August. Yes. Then we will begin our coverage of the fall 2014 TV schedule when TV returns in the fall. We really wanted to start our reviews of Korra, but we had planned to go on hiatus and vacation after this week, so we've decided to do a retrospective episode when we come back in the fall, so we hope to see all of you back here again when TV begins in the fall. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, including some news with Nico, over the summer, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairways.com. Yes, and also, we will be releasing episodes of the Helicarrier podcast about different Marvel movies and other things coming out. So, uh, there will be things happening here at ATA while the regular show is on hiatus. So, keep an eye out for that stuff. And also, I advise you guys to check out our spinoff podcast. And one of the new announcements about our spinoff podcast is that the Helicarrier podcast, the show dedicated to covering episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., has now been set up with its own website that you can access through the ATA page or at its own home address called thehelicarrierpodcast.com. And also for the Helicarrier Podcast, that podcast is accessible as its own feed on iTunes if you search the Helicarrier Podcast within iTunes. So you can get that podcast on its own feed. And for ATA, just continue getting it on our regular enhanced feed or standard feed along with the other two shows we have. It's Tangent Time and I'm Longbow Hunters. Kind of DC Nation podcast stuff which is going to come be ran- revamped, can come back under a new name. Also be sure to check out our other podcasts, including It's Tangent Time, hosted by Michael J. Petty and Wu S. Kim, where they choose a random or genre topic and discuss it in more detail than would fit in any of our other podcast shows. We also have DC Nation, which, as Dan mentioned, is under renovation, to return under a new name and new format in the fall when the podcast returns from hiatus. We also have the back catalog of our Longbow Hunters podcast, The Arrow Podcast, which was hosted by Michael and Wu and covered the episodes of the first two seasons of Arrow before their final episode at the end of season two when they wrapped up their coverage and the podcast. But the back catalog is still available on our website and iTunes feeds. Also, you can check us out on a new home on the Mix Radio Station. It's an online radio station available with links on our acrosstheairwaves.com homepage. So in addition to our website, RSS feeds, and iTunes subscription locations, you can listen to the podcast on the Mix Radio's Mix Talk feed on Fridays at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. And our other podcast shows are available at other times throughout the week as well, and we'll let those shows let you know exactly what time they're on the mixed radio station on their shows. There's also the ability to play all of our podcast episodes directly on the website for those of you who are not familiar with the iTunes feeds or how to use RSS feeds or just prefer the convenience of listening to it on the website. 
So until our next episode, you can contact us on our website at acrosstheairwaves.com or can email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Make sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Across Airwaves, or join our circle on Google Plus to be kept aware of all our podcast releases and be kept up to date on all the news items from the News with Nico section and all the news provided by our other podcast members. You can also leave a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363 and give us your thoughts, opinions, or even a review on one of the many shows we haven't reviewed yet. Also make sure to check out our YouTube channel for all the great previews and trailers for all the upcoming TV shows and movies coming out soon. We are also available on Stitcher Radio, and you can access Across the Airwaves through the Stitcher app on any of your mobile phones. We also have a Podcast Box app available on iOS and an Android app available in the Amazon Marketplace if you'd like to buy one of those two apps. Remember, the Stitcher Radio app is free but you'll have to pay for the ios and android apps so what's it got for our other ata podcast hosts michael j petty Wu Kim, and andy babak i'm dan schmidt and i'm nico resnick okay until our next episode we'll catch you on airways have a great couple weeks you guys we will be back for comic-con with a great episode for all of you see ya Joffrey gets poisoned. Everyone flops their wieners all around his face. Yeah! Jeffster lives, man! We now return to our regularly scheduled program.